Good morning, I'm Casey, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is what Isaiah, Amos's son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills. Peoples will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. Then they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, 1 to 4. So if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has any power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, If your hearts are at all moved with the affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how to do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as a superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. The word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. My name is Cor. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you love me. The word of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your presence with us this morning by your Holy Spirit. And now as we open up your word to us, we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would uh, give us ears to be able to hear. And Lord, above all, we want to see Jesus this morning. We want to behold him in his glory and in his beauty. And we want to be made more like him. So come and do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Great to be with you this Sunday morning as we worship together. Uh, If you're new or newish here, we're just so glad that you've come. There's actually a lunch at the end of the service, uh, actually at the end of the second service, that we'd love to invite you to, and you can find out more about the church. We typically teach through a book of the New Testament in the fall, a book in the Old Testament or a series in the Old Testament in the spring. And so this, this fall, we've started through a 
book in the New Testament called Philippians, and it's somewhere kind of, uh, it's before Colossians and after Ephesians, and it's one of these letters that Paul uh, wrote to a church in a city called Philippi, and Philippi was a um, kind of a Greek Macedonian city that eventually became a Roman colony, and Paul goes there, and you can read kind of the story of the beginning of the church in Philippi in uh, the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 16, and so we've been in this series for a few weeks. We started out by talking about a kingdom companionship and a Christ-centered kind of confidence. And Paul opens up the letter saying, my joy is when I think of you. And he's thinking of these Christians that are there in Philippi. And so we talked about how a, the right kind of kingdom companions around us can fill our lives with joy. Even as we walk through times of difficulty and times of sorrow, Paul's writing this letter from prison. So he's not promising a life that, that where the circumstances all look right, but he's saying there's a deeper kind of joy in Christ. And then in week two, we looked at the prayer that Paul prayed for these friends of his in Philippi, and he prayed a prayer uh, that they would grow in their knowledge, their revelation of who Jesus is, and in their discernment, their insight, and how they thought through the, the implications of who Jesus is for their life as Christians. And then last week, Pastor Jason did a marvelous job talking about letting the gospel, the good news, spread through us and spread through us not only by our words, but also by the very way that we live and the, the, the remarkable way that we love one another. And so it was a great challenge to think about Paul in prison saying, actually, even here, the gospel is spreading. And so to, to take the limits off of our own minds and to say, well, maybe God can use me. Maybe my life situations, maybe my circumstances can actually be an occasion for the gospel of the Lord to keep spreading, or if you'd like, for the joy of the Lord to infect the world around me. Now that last piece of what Jason said last week about our love for one another, our unity together, that's actually where we're going to zoom in a little bit more today. We're going to talk about a remarkable unity in Jesus. This love for one another that leads to a special kind of unity, a revolutionary kind of unity in Jesus. And many of you know that I, um, I'm from Malaysia, which is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back, the world being round and all, we've been over this. And, uh, and, and uh, my, I grew up there, and when I was 10, my whole family decided to move from Malaysia to America. My parents were following the call of God on their lives to go to Bible college, and so they were giving up their jobs, and for my sister and I, I have an older sister, we just thought this was a great thing, you know, an adventure, and especially for me at 10, I just thought, we're going to America, this is awesome, you know, like pizza and cheeseburgers and french fries and freedom, of course, and, uh, <laughs> and so we, we moved to Portland, Oregon when I was 10 years old, and we lived in this little apartment, my parents were Bible college students, and it was, those were great years, and I also joined the middle school band uh, during those years and learned how to play the trumpet. Uh, God gave my parents great grace and patience as I learned to play the trumpet. But after three years or so, it was time to go back, and so we moved back to Malaysia in 1991. I was uh, 13. and. Uh, I was so sad that we were leaving America and going back to Malaysia that the first morning back in Malaysia, I got up, took out my trumpet, and played the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> true story. It's a true story. I, I just was like, I can't believe I'm not living in the land of the free. 
And so I played the Star Spangled Banner and, and probably played it more than my neighbors would have liked. And, uh, and so then, then I finished up my high school years, four years there in, in Malaysia, and then came back to college in the States. I uh, went to a school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oral Roberts University, met Jason there, met Holly, my wife there. That was slightly more important than meeting Jason. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so after, you know, after all that, so I had a, a student visa at, at ORU, and then I worked for the university for a year. They helped me with a religious workers visa. I don't know how much of this stuff you guys know how this works. Uh, it's quite a bit of paperwork and, and legal fees and all of that. And then after that, I came over to New Life in the summer of 2000, and the church was kind enough to be a sponsoring um, organization for uh, my, my religious workers visa to work here at the church. And so after about a year of that, though, Holly and I got married, and then things got easier on all of that side. So, you know, applied for the green card and all of that, did all these interviews up in Denver, and you're showing photos of your wedding album, letting them know this is real, and... It's a great process, I'll tell you more sometime. And, uh, and so I had the green card for, for a lot of years, and then finally in August of 2009, completed the process and became a citizen. So I wanted to show you this picture because there that is, this is 10, year, 10 years ago. Uh, you can tell it's 10 years ago because the hair, the glasses, all the stuff, yeah. Um, but it was a, re a really, really uh, happy day, a really proud moment. And, and I, I thought of this because it was just a few weeks ago that the memory sort of popped up and I realized, oh, it's been 10 years. And uh, ten, 10 years of being a citizen. And earlier this summer, um, Holly and I and our two older kids were in New York City and I, we'd been there a couple times, the girls had not. And so we did all of the stuff, you know, Statue of Liberty and all of that. And touring the Liberty Island was a really remarkable thing. And, and I took this picture there thinking, this is so great, like I love this. I love the, the principles, the, 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 the idea of equal rights and dignity and liberty. And you start to realize, and many of you, as you already know, uh, you start to realize what a remarkable place America is and how its, its place in human history is a unique one. But you also recognize that for all of its good, it's not, still not the most revolutionary community in human history. I mean, it is, it is amazing. And when you read the first few words, you think about where it says, when in the course of human events and da 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 you know, and, and we want to create a place where everyone has been given, you know, it, it, these inalienable rights and we've got to be able to allow people to pursue. But then you think back at those early years of America's founding and you're like, well, it wasn't quite true for everyone though, was it? It wasn't true for the slaves that were brought here from Africa. It wasn't true for the Native Americans. It wasn't true for women. And so you're like, well, it was a great ideal, but it was still falling short, even by its own measure. And so you say, well, as remarkable as America is, what is actually the most revolutionary community in human history? It may surprise you to know that it's the church, that it's the church. You're like, no, come on, it's not the church. What do we do? Sing a few songs, pass a white bucket, and listen to a certain... Like, how is the church the most revolutionary history, a community in human history? It's because of what the church did. Prior to Christianity, human societies organized by families, ancestry. They organized by geography and region. We, this is our corner of the land. They organized by ethnicity. They were organized by certain patterns of living. These are the nomadics. These are the settlers. But when the church arrived, it was revolutionary in the ancient world because it began to transcend other ways of defining communal identity. 
It was absolutely stunning. And the Romans, you can read writings. Last year I read a book that, that compiled the opinions of the Romans as they wrote letters to one another trying to figure out who these Christians were. I mean, it's one thing to read Christian letters, which is what we're doing when we read the New Testament. It's another thing to read Roman letters as they're looking at these, this new community and scratching their heads and saying, how do men and women eat together and it not turn into an orgy? Literally, they were writing letters saying, ah, surely something scandalous is going on. And they're like, no, it's not actually, because we know how to treat one another with respect. That was revolutionary. And then they said, how, how is it that in these gatherings there are masters and slaves that worship together as equals, that pray together as equals before God, as if Jesus is the only master over all? How is it that that can happen? How is it that rich and poor could gather in the same household at the same table? Who are these people? One of the reasons Rome began persecuting Christians, and this is where so many of us, wonder, maybe you have wrong information about this, the wrong impression of this, but we tend to think that Rome persecuted Christians because Rome was a secular state. We sort of imagine it like communists, the communist Soviet Union or the communist China, and we're like, oh, Rome was sort of like that. They were anti-religion. That was the exact opposite of the truth. Rome was pro-religion. They wanted all religions, all gods, all forms of worship. They wanted all the idols except for one name, the name of Jesus. Why? Because the name of Jesus was the only name that threatened to undo society as they knew it. Every other idol left the status quo. Every other idol let you keep your prejudices and let you keep your tribal identities and let you keep your divisions between male and female and slave and freeborn. Every other idol let you preserve the status quo. But one name came to disrupt it all, the name of Jesus. When we sang this morning, Jesus, name above all names, it's a sweet, beautiful song and you feel the presence of God. But you have to know that in the first century, the name of Jesus really did make people tremble. It really did make the powers shake. I mean, what would cause the force of the greatest empire in that region of the world to train its attention, to focus its its weaponry and its attention on a fledgling group of former Jewish or Jewish converts into a follower of a peasant teacher named Jesus. Why? Because followers of Jesus were disrupting the social order. They were just, and I saw, so I've chosen my words carefully here. I don't just mean it was the most remarkable unity, I mean it was a revolutionary unity. It overthrew the systems that they were, that, that, that were in that day. It overthrew the powers of the day. It overthrew old lines of authority. So when you think about this church in Philippi, Philippi, the Macedonian city that became a Roman colony, that had Greeks who'd been living there for centuries and then resettled retired Roman soldiers. Philippi, a city who was trying to rebrand itself by inviting Caesar and by having more Roman flavor to it. And Paul says, look, the only thing that can bring together disparate groups of people, it's not the power of Rome, it's the power of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus alone. So when you look in at the church of Philippi, you, you, you begin to see some 
amazing things about it. Acts 16 tells us that the first leader of the church in Philippi was a woman named Lydia. And some of you are like, well, I wouldn't go that far, Glenn. I mean, she just opened up her home. But listen, in the ancient world, she wasn't ser serving milk and cookies. You imagine Lydia as like the great, you know, sort of southern host with the apron. Oh, can I get y'all anything while Paul over here preaches? Lydia was leading the thing. And we know this because the gathering grows even while Paul's in prison. And when Paul's in prison, he comes back out. The first thing he does after getting the prison guard saved, he says, we had to go to Lydia and see what was going on, to see the other believers there. In fact, later at the end of this letter, Paul names two female leaders of the church in Philippi, and he calls them his co-laborers. He uses the same kind of language about Eunice and I can't think of her name, the other person's name. Um, we'll get to her as the series goes on. <laughs> And he, says to, and he says to them, these are my co-laborers. These are, these are other leaders in the church. So here's a society in which a woman is at least a very prominent leader, at least, where Greeks and retired Roman soldiers are together, where the Jesus movement is crossing ethnic and national and social and gender boundaries. This is a revolutionary community. This is an unheard of church. And so when Paul begins to write in Philippians 2, you can see that he wants them to know what they have. He wants them to know, listen, you guys, this doesn't happen every day. This didn't happen accidentally, and it won't continue unintentionally. You have to fight for this. So the beginning of Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my Joy, I love this. This is where our title for the series comes from, Complete Joy. Paul says, you can complete my joy by, and he's about to ask for something. But I, I, I want to pause right here and just look at that last bit of that phrase, complete my joy. He's saying to them, I find great joy in the way you live in unity with one another. I find complete joy in it. This, for parents in the room, you know, who spend so many hours a day telling your kids to stop fighting with one another. That one brief moment where you happen to look over because it's quiet and they're playing together, kindly deferring one to the other, and you're like, oh, and you Instagram it because it's the only grammable moment of the whole weekend. That's like Paul, he's like, just complete my joy here, make it work. Or, for any of you that have been to a symphony and you hear an orchestra with different instruments and different roles in the, in the, uh, the song, all of a sudden play together and you're like, wow, everybody's kicked in now, the horns, the percussion, the woodwinds, the strings, and Wow, that sounds amazing. And people smile. They erupt at a symphony because different instruments are playing together in harmony. And you say, wow, that's this idea. Joy comes when you see things moving and working together. Maybe another example of this is when you watch sports <laughs> and you watch a great team in sync with one another and they just know where each other's going to be in a perfectly timed pass like the Air Force's, you know, one of whatever eight passes they threw yesterday to beat CU and the one deep one down the middle of the field. Nobody watched the game, Ben Waters? Okay. <laughs> All of a sudden when it happens, you're like, oh, this is it. And there's an eruption of joy when things work together 
the way they're supposed to. That's what Paul's saying. He's looking for, if there's any of this stuff, complete my joy, work together, find this out. Now look at, look at Paul's buildup here. I want you to look at what he's saying. He says the encouragement that comes from Christ, that's an appeal to God. The comfort that comes from their love, that's an appeal to them as humans. The partnership they have in the spirit, that's an appeal to God. And the affection they have for one another, that's human. This is Paul really ramping up to ask for something big right now. You're like, okay, Paul, what do you want? If there's any encouragement from Christ, comfort from one another, partnership in the spirit, affection from one another, you're like, yes, Paul, what do you need? And he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. I want us to look this morning at three things that help us preserve a revolutionary kind of unity. Three ways to fight for, to work for, preserving a revolutionary kind of unity in Christ. Philippians 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's the first thing. Revolutionary unity. Revolutionary unity in Jesus means being of the same mind. Now this phrase, being of the same mind, Paul actually uses that word 10 times in this letter for mind. Same mind, 10 times. And in those 10 times, it's translated many different ways. Sometimes it's translated as feel, be minded, have the attitude of mind, take a view, think, set the mind on, be concerned. English is a very broad language, isn't it? 10 different ways of translating this phrase, but this verb generally speaks of a person's dominant attitude or settled disposition. A person's dominant attitude, your primary attitude in life, or your settled disposition. I kind of like that phrase, your settled disposition. He says, be of this primary attitude, be of this settled disposition. What is it? The second half of verse 2, he says, being in full accord and of one mind. I like this idea of being in full accord because there's, to me, I, as a musician, I hear a music metaphor again. That harmony is not the same thing as unison. Unison means singing the same notes. Accord means singing notes that harmonize together. What I love about this picture is Paul's not asking them to be clones. Unity in the church is not the result of all of us being the same. And even a phrase like being of the same mind. Oh, well, I suppose we just all need to be cookie cutter. That's not what the phrase means. Being of the same mind is about harmonizing together, having a similar spirit and outlook. See, the gospel does not erase our distinctions. It erases our divisions. The gospel doesn't erase our distinctions. You don't stop being you. We don't all become the same Enneagram number. We don't all become the same Myers-Briggs. We, we don't, you don't stop being you. You don't lose your story when you join the kingdom. You actually find where your story fits with someone else's. You find your place in it. Again, like an instrument in the symphony, we say, oh, this is your part here in the song. This is your place. This is where it harmonizes together here. Revolutionary unity in Jesus means being of the same mind, settled disposition. And what is that? It's the humble mindset of Jesus Christ. It's the humble mindset of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach on the very hymn 
that Paul goes into next, this hymn about who Jesus is. But his, his exhortation to the Philippians, he said, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And then he burst into song. Most likely here this is a song. And he goes on to say what the mindset was in Jesus. And so we're just going to kind of sneak ahead and look at that. What does it mean? Verse 5, having this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Back in verse 3. He gives us a little bit more about what that humble mindset of Jesus Christ looks like. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Now, this is an interesting thing. As many of us as Christians, maybe we tend to think of humility as sort of thinking less of yourself. I think it was C.S. Lewis years ago who said, it's not so much thinking less of yourself, but it's really about thinking of yourself less, like less often. You don't have to have a lower view of yourself. I, I, I like that Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Do you know there's a way of counting others more significant from yourself that has nothing to do with humility? There's a way of counting others more significant than yourself that actually comes from a woundedness or a rejection or a place of hurt. Maybe you've been beat up. Maybe you have parents that told you you were good for nothing. You never do anything great. Maybe you had a, 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 a girlfriend or a boyfriend or an, or an ex-spouse, whatever, that, that really left you bruised and battered. So you're good at esteeming others better than yourself, but it doesn't actually come from humility. It comes from a place of woundedness. And Paul says, no, look, in humility... In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. I think humility means valuing yourself, valuing others without devaluing yourself. I think humility means valuing others without devaluing yourself. Without saying, I am so terrible. I'm so, you're so amazing. And we, listen, we, we've all been the person or been around the person who gives you compliments, but you can't really say thank you because they're actually just beating up on themselves. Oh, man, boy, you always look so good. Wish I knew how to dress or, you know, something lame like that, you know. If you're in, you're in class, you're in school, like, well, you always get the grades. Wish I was smart. And you're like, thank you? How do I respond to that? Because you really just beat yourself up. You weren't really complimenting me. You were really devaluing yourself. You see the difference? You weren't really esteeming me. You were depreciating yourself. And there's that, those are the, the most difficult kinds of compliments to know how to respond to because you're like, I, I don't know what to say here. Because I feel like you really just don't think of yourself as precious and valuable. Paul says, I, I'm not talking about that. Paul says, I want you to lift up the significance and the value of someone else without devaluing yourself you know who you are John 13 it says that Jesus knowing that he had come from God knowing that all things had been placed under his authority began to wash their feet you can serve someone else without having to beat yourself up Jesus knows who he is and then serves that's what Christ-like humility looks like a, a low self-esteem kind of humility is a false sort of humility. That says, I'm, uh, it's like Eeyore, actually, you know. I'm not very good. You're always smarter than me. 
You're like, no, I just, I, no, that's not what I'm saying. How could we practice this? How could we find a way to value someone without devaluing ourselves? But maybe the flip side of this is not that we struggle with devaluing ourselves, but we struggle not to be self-referential. You know the person, and maybe you've been that person, I've been that person, I'm sure of it, who you can't be in a conversation without finding a way to dot it back to yourself. So someone's talking about what's going on in their life, and you know, their child just got married or whatever, and you're like, oh, I've done some weddings. Or just find some random way of like connecting it back to yourself. You're like, okay, right, great. All right. So, so how was your vacation? Well, it was great, we went to the mountains. I've been to the mountains, <laughs> you know. Like, all right, like, can I just finish my story, you know? And, and it, you know these people at parties, it's the ones that you want to get away from because every story leads back to them. It's their story suddenly. You're like, I thought this was my story. You're like, that's a great story. It reminds me of another story that is really about me. <laughs> and humility is, is, is somewhere in between those extremes. It's neither this low appraisal of ourselves, nor is it this inflated sense that everything somehow relates back to you. Okay. <laughs> As Paul goes on in verse 2, he says, not only having the same mind, he says, having the same love. Revolutionary unity in Jesus means actually being of the same love. Verse 4, he says what this love looks like. He, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what love looks like. It looks like kind of paying attention to what someone else might need or is in, would be in their interest. Revolutionary unity in Jesus means being of the same love, the self-giving love of Jesus. The self-giving love of Jesus. Revolutionary unity. It's the self-giving love of Jesus. And then in verse 7, we have kind of a hint of what this self-giving love of Jesus looks like. In this hymn that Paul's either quoting or writing, it says that, but Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and by being in the likeness of men. Jesus empties himself, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. Christ-like love looks like emptying yourself to elevate someone else. It looks like emptying yourself in order to elevate others. I wonder how we can take an inventory of this. What are the ways in which we either don't empty ourselves or all of our work? Think of emptying yourself as what do you spend your energy on? What do you spend your gifts on? What do you spend your platform on? So often, if you scroll back at our maybe last 10 posts on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you're like, man, those were a lot of posts with my face in it. Does it ever look like elevating someone else? Does it ever look like telling someone else's story? Does it ever look like shining the light on another person? Another way to kind of take stock of this is to look at your calendar. When you sit down, you know, every couple months, maybe every six months, you should sit down and kind of look at your calendar ahead and to say, am I just living reactively here? This is one of the reasons why one of the tools that we learn in the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship courses is a, a rule of life where it helps us in kind of this 
this old sort of Benedictine way to say, how can I order my life in a way that allows me to give out the love of God to others? Because if you just want to know what we do by default, we order our life so that we can experience the maximum amount of comfort. Most of how I, you guys are not reacting to that. You're like, no, I don't know. I don't think, maybe, maybe that's just you, Pastor. You know, like, okay, fair enough. I'll own it. Left to my own devices, I would order my life by what was the best for me, what felt the most comfortable to me, the most easy for me. But a way to check if you're living with the same love, the kind of Christ-like love, is to say, am I emptying myself in order to elevate others? Or am I emptying myself just to get a better future for myself? a better vacation next summer, a better this or that. Any part of my life being ordered and arranged in such a way as the result, so that the result is others get lifted up. And that could be social media, but I'll tell you where it really hits for all of us is it's really about time. It's about time. How do we spend our time and our energy? Is it about emptying ourselves to elevate others or not? Now you listen to this and you think, well, Glenn, you basically told us today that the key to Christian unity is to be more like Jesus. <laughs> that's true. And you're like, well, that's kind of depressing because I'm not Jesus. Also true. <laughs> and the good news of the gospel is a, the gospel is a double-edged sword. It cuts by showing us how deeply we are not like Jesus, how far we've actually fallen short of living like him. And the other edge of the gospel says, but behold, Christ has made it possible for you to be united with him. And by the power of his spirit living in you, the life of Christ is actually being formed in you. And the more we become like Jesus, the more we live out our unity with one another. And that's the third, amen. And that's the third thing. That's the third thing is revolutionary unity in Jesus comes from relational union with Jesus. The only way we get to live out a kind of revolutionary unity is because we live in a relational union with Jesus. It's the only source. He's the only source. You, you don't self-help your way into this. You don't five-step your way into this. You don't buckle your, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like grip your knuckles and say, oh, I'm going to do this better. We do this by saying, Jesus, draw me closer to you. Let me join in with you. And as I share in your life, all of a sudden, my mindset starts to look like your mindset. My love starts to look like your love. And we start to become like one another. Maybe a way to think of this is like a wagon wheel. You know, in a wagon wheel, there's this hub and there's all these spokes. And you, you notice that the closer each spoke gets to the hub, the closer they get to each other. So many times we make Christian unity the goal. We got to be more united. Let's do more events where we can be united. And it's almost like taking these two pieces of wood and just be more united. Instead of recognizing that actually Christian unity is the result of being close to Jesus. The closer you move to Jesus, 
the closer you move to one another. The closer you come to Him, the closer we actually come to each other. So every Sunday you come to church, there is a part of our worship where we're, you know, in a manner of speaking, closing our eyes and lifting our hands and looking up and saying, yes, Jesus, I love you. But there's also a part of our worship where we say, oh, man, you, you, you too. Oh, man, you, you as well. We're all, we all love Jesus. We're all moving closer to him. And as our union with Jesus increases, so does our unity with one another. Amen? Would you bow your heads this morning? There's no place where we see this acted out more dramatically than at the Lord's table. It's at the Lord's table that we come because of Jesus. We come because of what Jesus is offering us. Jesus is calling us. But as we arrive at the table, we realize this is not a table for two. This is not me and Jesus having a private picnic. It's a great banquet, a great feast with our brothers and sisters in Christ invited. And so this morning, if you would, just bow your heads and allow the Holy Spirit to kind of speak to you this morning, to say, where is Christ wanting to produce in you that mindset of humility that values others without devaluing yourself? Where is Christ wanting to produce in you the self-giving love of Christ, the love that empties yourself in order to elevate others. Let's come to Jesus this morning.